the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Tuesday, April 27th, as we head into Hour 2. Delight to bring back our good friend David Arsani, senior writer for National Review, author of super important book. I think we had him on last time talking about the book, First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. Senior writer at National Review, his piece, John Kerry, is being shielded by a staggering double standard. I saw this story, David, yesterday, and I thought – the thought I had, um, the story – for those that don't know, the story is that uh, John Kerry told the uh, foreign minister of Iran, um, Javad Zarif, about uh, Israeli counterterrorism attacks against Iran in Syria, uh, thus aiding – if the story is true – thus aiding um, the world's leading sponsor of terrorism – uh, with information classified about an ally of ours in the same region and an enemy of um, of, uh, of Iran's. David, the first thing I thought when I saw this story was, we're going to see a lot of these stories. I, I mean, I just think John Kerry is trouble for a lot of reasons. And why the administration wanted to bring him in, I thought that was dangerous as well. Someone so close to the presidency in the first place and a former secretary of state like this is just he's not someone you can control, nor do I think his compass has ever been pointed north. But you tell me what you thought. Well, I guess I'd say that it looks like the Biden administration is Obama 3.0, basically. Uh He was part of that. And um, Biden was part of that. Biden, Biden also. Um, was part of the giveaway to Iran, yep. and um, I don't think Biden would act and probably act in the way that Kerry does. I mean, the sycophant when it comes to Iran, uh, he values them over Israel. I, if you, if you know, if he was honest, I think he'd say he'd rather have Iran as an ally than Israel, and he acts that way. And it is completely conceivable that he would trade in secrets that undermined Israel's security. Uh, you know, to to you know, to placate the Iranians. Um, problem with the whole thing for me is, I think we know, knew that, but he was in the government, and that's government policy when you're doing things like that. Sure. I don't like it, but it is what it is. Right. Right. Now you have him as a private citizen right. undermining the administration's policy towards Iran openly, not openly, but almost openly going and, and, and you know, to foreign countries and speaking to our adversaries. Mm-hmm. Iran is our adversary. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, it's just unprecedented. I can't even think of a modern example or any example in American history of that, of a former secretary of state going abroad to undermine the president administration's policies in that way. No, I can't either. It's a tremendous it's a tremendous thing when you think about it. And um, I, I suppose one one asks why, why would why would Kerry put himself in this position in the first place? Uh, you know, I, 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 I suppose it has to do with two things. One, ideology, as you've pointed out. But also, this is a man whose career, other than the Iran deal and whatever happened in Vietnam, uh, 
pretty much doesn't have a headline to it. I mean, I think he wants to be known as the man who made peace with Iran. I really do. And I think that oh, that's, yeah. that's – when you think about his long record of service, can you think of any other headline about John Kerry other than he lost the presidency in 04? I mean, the man does not have a lot to his record that's esteemable. I mean, a, a few a few will-o'-the-wisp weird, weird investigations in the 80s, but that's about it, right? Well, I also remember, I mean, I don't remember personally, I was alive, but I remember it happening, him going down to Nicaragua to defend communist dictator down there uh, from the Reagan administration as well. So it's the kind of thing he likes to do. Um, I don't think he's an impressive character. I think he's been wrong about a million things, including what would happen when Israel moved their embassy to Jerusalem. He predicted there would be some kind of widespread uh, conflict and war and instead we have normalization agreements with, with uh, Israel and a bunch of Sunni Arab nations. So he's been wrong about everything. He was wrong about the Iran deal, wrong about Israel. And I'm sure he's been wrong about a million other things, including his radical positions on um, climate change and what we need to do in that arena, where he's perfectly happy, you know, going to speaking with the Chinese and, you know, treating them as if they're equal, etc., to make a deal there. So... I think he's a dangerous character, yeah, but uh, he's so unimpressive, I don't think he'll get anything done, which is a good thing. What's odd to me is whenever you see him interviewed, he's always defending Iran, and I wonder if there's ever been a case, I can't think of it, where he's ever said he, you know, a lot of administrations do this, David, right? They'll say, well, we raise the human rights issues privately. I've never even heard him say that. I've never heard him say we've challenged them on terrorism, we've challenged them on human rights. I've never heard him even defend himself on that. No, he he doesn't do that. I mean, uh, you know, you're right. Most people say that, and probably maybe they do it, right? But I don't think he does. Um, and if, if there is uh, the leaked call, is any indication, he's telling them, you know, he's speaking about Israel, not about Iran. You know, did you know killing of six hundred American servicemen through their proxies, or actually not even always through their proxies, or or the other things that they do to undermine uh, America and our allies? It's hard to sometimes when you read columns about this, for instance, from left wingers. It's hard. Sometimes you have to remind yourself: Israel is actually an ally of America, and Iran is not. Iran is an adversary, and sometimes people forget that they think, and I believe they think you know, Ben Rhodes, Obama, and the others, that they want Iran to be a regional power and uh, to, to sort of blunt Israel's power and Saudi Arabia's to sort of create some kind of peace there. I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to work, but I think that's what they're really thinking. Um, I, I think you're right. And, and, and the other thing that's odd, though, about this, and I want to get to the point of your piece, David, too, which is the, the double standard part. I'm just trying to understand John Kerry. The wrongness. Let me start. Did you ever hear the audio? Bill, do we still have the audio? Did you ever hear the audio, David, of him talking about how you can't do Israel-Arab peace deals without the Palestinians? Did you ever hear? You couldn't. I mean, it's just 180 degrees wrong on every one of these things trying to salvage, I suppose, some bit of reputation. But the point of your column is great because this is a story that hasn't been covered. It's a hugely, I think, important story. Uh, there are probably, what, 10 countries in the world that are really important. I think Iran and Israel probably make that list. And this story didn't make it to 
ABC or CBS or NBC. I, I think it's an incredible thing. And as you point out, if you go back to the nuclear deal with Iran, this is great history on your part. I really appreciate you having done this because I forgot about it. When you go back and recall in 2015, uh, several senators, what was it, something like 50 Republican senators sent an open letter to the Iranians saying that since the Senate isn't ratifying this treaty, it may be very well temporary. And all these newspapers and press outlets and Democrats blasted the Republicans for disrupting foreign policy, right? Yeah. I mean, Tom Cotton, I think, led it, that effort. I think it was 47 okay. signatures. I think they, you know, they talked about the treaty clause and how we do it here. And they warned that the, the, the deal probably won't last long. And it did not last long. So um, they were right. I don't, you know. I don't know how I felt. I don't remember how I felt about that letter, but a lot either. of Democrats I, I don't and a lot of pundits. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a yeah. lot of pundits said, I mean, I know I wasn't upset about it, right? Right. But, but I wondered if it was appropriate. I also wondered. <laughs> right. Too, at exactly. The time. Yeah. Right. But a lot of pundits said that there was a violation of the Logan Act and, you know, just all kinds of, I mean, there it, it was, it's wall to wall coverage. Every, basically every columnist wrote about it and it was a big deal. Now you have John Kerry, I mean, a former secretary of state during the Trump administration going to Europe to meet with the Iranian foreign minister, an adversary of the United States, to undermine policies of the U.S. government. It's completely inappropriate. And I don't even know that most Americans know that 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 happened. Right. And now we learn that he may have handed over, you know, I'm not, listen, I'm sure the Iranians know who's blowing up stuff in Syria. (laughs) It's not, you know, it's not... uh, you know, the Chinese, it's, it's probably the Israelis, and that's fine. But his, why is he even talking about that? He's supposed to be an American statesman, a person who cares about our allies, etc., and he's involved in that sort of conversation. Yeah, even I think if he's lying, pu- but I can't ever prove it. Right? Yeah, but even if it is public knowledge, or even if it's not so much public knowledge, but publicly available knowledge, uh, for him to do that, is, is the, the motive has to be only one of showing the Iranians that they have an American on their side, mm-hmm. right? That this this guy sees what they're interested in and wants to help their interests, not America's yeah, I wish ally. I had made that point. Right? Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I it just dawns on me as we're talking about it, uh, the message it conveys to Iran. And I, the other odd thing about this, this is a very odd story. The other odd thing about this, David, is why would Zarif say this? If he and Kerry are such good friends, it obviously wasn't something he would lie about. He may have been wrong about it. He may be mistaken about it. But I don't think it was to throw John Kerry under the bus. I think, if anything, it was to brag or something. But can I come back to you on the other side of this break? Can we talk a little more about this and a few other things, if you have a little more time? I appreciate it. We're talking to David Harsanyi, senior writer for National View, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. I'm also curious. I'm just asking everyone. Do they understand what the CDC's rules on masks outdoors are now? I'm just curious. Did they make it clear? David's a smart guy. We'll see if he understands it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delight to have David Harsanyi with us. He's a senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun. And he did some great research here in his most recent piece, John Kerry is Being Shielded by a Staggering 
double standard. Uh, let me ask you this, David, um, if I can, crystal ball kind of stuff, but do you sense that the United States, perhaps with other nations, the other five, but um, do you think the United States and Iran are going to be able to remake a nuclear deal in the shape and form that the Biden administration is appealing to, do you think? You know, I don't know. I feel like probably I, right now I feel like they won't. Yeah. Tomorrow I might feel differently. I saw a story before I got on with you about American ship right. having been having to fire off right. some Iranian boats again. Right. right. Um, I don't know if Iran wants it. I That's don't know right. what they want. It's hard to tell. Yeah. I think Israel will do what it can to sabotage it. I know people don't like to hear that, but I mean they have every right to self-defense and allowing a, a nation that makes genocidal threats against it to have a nuclear weapon is just not going yeah, to Yeah, when you talk about that. a country that will no longer exist, you can't blame that country for trying to exist. Right. And I know there's a long history of, of in the 60s, they did this with Egypt when they were building missiles that could have destroyed them. So I just don't think they'll allow this kind of thing to happen without some kind of military action. Unfortunately, if there was a deal, it would basically give you on cover and i think that that would be make it much more difficult um so it, it, I don't does, know it actually does make it difficult in this sense doesn't it it puts some daylight doesn't it between the u.s and israel uh, such that if israel were to attack iran or u.s would have to debate inside the administration whose side they're on to protect the deal or protect the ally right i mean that's what's concerning here i think oh yeah i mean it would it creates makes it very difficult for if Israel launches an attack against a nation that is in a in a deal with the, the European nations and the United States it makes it makes it a much more um, significant act of war I guess and it, it means that they've undermined America, the United States in some way and also um, the US won't allow them to use their airspace That's you know right. certain right. airspace right. things like that it, right. it makes it much more complicated now obviously Israel has grown much closer to Sunni Gulf states that are also the enemy of Iran. I think if Iran gets a nuclear weapon or enters this deal, Saudi Arabia will probably want a nuclear weapon itself. So it escalates everything. I'm, you know, I don't consider myself some great ex- expert on the area, but uh, it's, it's, you don't have to be to no. see what will happen if Iran, if Iran right now with this leadership gets a deal. We should mention another thing about the Obama administration that they chose the mullahs over the people yeah. who were rebelling in the green movement i think it was 2009 to make a deal and that um was a was a horrible decision also that that led led us here and they keep doing that they keep selling everyone out along the way to make this deal and i just it's hard for me to understand the motivation behind it i think you hit on it with you know kerry saying he's the man who made the you know peace with iran and so on but uh, it just doesn't make much sense. To me. That oh nine, that that two thousand nine, uh, you know, I didn't put it together till later that this was in an effort for some kind of dream deal with Iran. But I remember thinking in oh nine uh, when Barack Obama said we aren't going to meddle in Iran's political affairs, which is taking a side. It's not being neutral when you say you're not going to meddle and only one side has guns. That's taking a side. And he shut down that um, organic revolution in Iran. I thought at the time, and I think still today, I think that was the single worst thing the Obama administration did in an in a, in a eight-year term of very bad things. I really yeah, think that that was the most consequential, shutting down that once in a, almost once-in-a-lifetime organic revolution. 
but then supporting the Islamists yeah. at the same time right. in Egypt and elsewhere. Right. And, right. You know, it just showed how they viewed the world. And, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was disgusting. I mean, it, um, no one's saying we needed to drop Marines in to help right. them, but we could have helped <laughs> them in other ways. There was obviously a big movement, right? right. Everyone was talking about the Arab Spring. And oh, here it was a have, huge moment. It was a huge moment. Yeah. And, 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 and he, here you have, yeah. you know, a, 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 yeah, a revolution in a place that is, you know, is a real theocracy yeah. of, of people who right. have lived a different right. way before in their history right. Right. Uh, being smothered by, by that. Yeah, I remember Roger so. Cohen of the New York Times, who was in Tehran covering this at the time, said they were they, they were very clearly on the streets marching, yelling, where's Obama, where's Obama? They wanted U.S. moral support, maybe a little material, maybe some communications equipment. That's all they were asking for. <laughs> they weren't asking to be shut down totally and then imprisoned such that I think, I mean, the experts I talk to, your Michael Rubens, et cetera, I think most of, that, most of the people who could lead such an effort now are in prison or dead. I mean, this really snuffed out the potential, the once in a almost lifetime rare potential of reform. And that's all Barack Obama's doing. Yeah. Yeah, he was. He was he was a terrible president. <laughs> uh, all right, I got to ask you. It's unfair to you, probably, but I just you're a smart guy, and I'm asking smart people. Do you understand the CDC's masking vaccination <laughs> I, policy at I, this I, point? It, it doesn't make any sense, but also okay. I don't care. Also, <laughs> you, you don't know. care. That's better. Yeah. That I yeah. I said earlier, David. I said there is this weird thing going on where these government officials have no compunction about talking like this, for example, Rochelle Walensky. We've spent a lot of time telling Americans what you can't do. Today I'm going to tell you things you can't do. The idea that they can talk like this with a straight face, thinking that it's the CDC director we're listening to to tell us what we can and cannot do. I know there are Karens out there that probably are hanging on every word of hers like it's from Mount Olympus. But the idea that there are Americans wondering if Joe Biden will let them have their 4th of July – it's pretty funny, but it's also pretty telling about their mindset. Yeah, absolutely. The CDC has no power to tell you how to act in any way. It's not, especially in any kind of national way. I mean, <laughs> you can tell Californians what to do or people in Arizona, but people listen to them as they can. And the problem is schools listen to them, yeah. and they, they just ignore science when it matters. Um, and now we know that we went through a year, more than a year, of having, you know, so-called experts mm-hmm. telling us how to live our lives that's totally uh, disconnected from actual science, yep. that has caused tremendous pain yep. and have caused tremendous suffering for many people, and that they did nothing to help us. And um, the, the way that Americans, too many Americans, simply gave up those freedoms to let governors unilaterally tell them they can't go to church or can't go into a store, I just can't believe that happened, and I can't believe there wasn't a bigger uproar. I don't believe that can happen again anytime soon. I hope not. Well, I don't believe... Uh, I don't believe it should. I worry about whether it was a test. I really, Alex Berenson and I were talking once about the mask stuff, and his point was, you know, I think this could be seen as a test to see what we can get Americans to do. Now, I know that's a little paranoid, but in looking back, you have to wonder. And um, and I, I, as, as, I, as, I am as, as shocked you, as you are, David, about how willingly and compliant uh, the American, too many of the American people were willing to listen to these non-elected experts speaking rot and obeying it as if it were as if it were the annals of the New England Journal of Medicine. It just wasn't. David, you're always great to have. I really appreciate you. Um, you always write exactly the kind of thing we're looking for. So thank you for your 
writing, and thank you for always being willing to come on the show with us. No, thank you for the kind words, and thanks for having me on. You betcha. You betcha. Be well. We'll talk soon. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I want to read this to you. It's um, it's important. Follow me on this. Uh, it's Steve Hayward. Stephen Hayward, um, who blogs over at Powerline, by the way, in case you don't know, is also a professor at UC Berkeley and um, author of several important biographies of Winston Churchill and Ronald Reagan, by any standard, a world-class intellect. Um, I've been working up a long piece about the extraordinary political scene, starting with the premise that it's one thing, he writes, for progressive Twitter to run the New York Times and quite another when progressive Twitter runs the entire Democratic Party. But that's where we are. Joe Biden has sold out wholly to the progressive mob. Full stop. He won by the narrowest of margins, but is governing as though Democrats had won by an FDR Reagan type landslide. The last president with a 50 50 Senate and close House of Representatives, George W. Bush, took care to govern close to the center and sought out Democratic input to his signature legislative initiative of his first year, the No Child Left Behind Act. Biden isn't even pretending to try to deal with Republicans. And in fact, up to 10 moderate Senate Republicans who have indicated their willingness to reach compromises with Biden are furious. All of them are furious that their good faith efforts to reach across to Biden have been used as window dressing by the White House. Maybe they'll learn their lesson. It is significant. What's the lesson? The lesson is this. If you have time that you know can be used to be wasted or for a good purpose, don't waste it. And if you're a public servant and you have time to make your case to win more Americans over to you and your side or to beat your head against a wall against an administration with an administration that is the most left-wing administration this country has ever had, if you have the choice between doing those two things, it, it just seems to me the second one is a poor choice. It seems like the second one is a poor choice. What do I mean by that? I guess I mean by that, if you're Mitt Romney and you know you carry somewhat of a bigger payload reputationally than your um, 99 other colleagues because your name is more well-known and because you've done more things in public life, Do you spend all your political capital attacking your party or the other guy's party? And that's an equation Mitt Romney hasn't figured out. He just hasn't figured it out. Or he has, perhaps, which is even more troublesome. All right. Anyway, Steve Hayward points out Washington Post NBC poll just came out, finds that Biden has a 52 percent public approval rating at 100 days in, which the Post admits is the lowest of any recent commander-in-chief at this point 
in their administration except for one president, Donald Trump. Okay, so Joe Biden has the lowest approval rating of any president at this point except Donald Trump. This certainly clashes with the media's nonstop love affair with the FDR-like transformative president they want Biden to be. Steve Moore puts it this way. But what really caught our eyes was that 78 percent or almost four out of five Republicans strongly disapprove of Biden's performance. Amazingly, that's a higher disapproval rating than Trump had with Democratic voters, which was 72 percent in the spring of 2017. The Post poll also shows Republican voters had a much less negative opinion of Obama at this stage. In other words, here's the headline. Here's the headline we could fix for everyone. Biden is more polarizing than either Obama or Trump at this point. I'll give you that headline again. Based on polling, Biden is more polarizing than either Obama or Trump at this point. I'll talk to you more about that when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Foam roofs here in the Valley are a great option for many homes, and that's where my friends at Trades Unlimited come in. They're there for all your roofing needs, but right now they're telling you about foam roofs, which not only help insulate from extreme Arizona heat, but they also help insulate your home from exterior noises, and more importantly, They protect your house from water leaks. Now, I've had the privilege of going down to the offices and warehouses of Trades Unlimited, and I can honestly say I was more than impressed with these people. Great, great, great people. Great work ethic. Quality of craftsmanship and the quality of the people they hire is the reason they have an A-plus rating with the BBB and have been in business for 26 years here in the Valley. Most of Trades Unlimited's business is by referral, and that to me always tells a lot about a company because people are happy to come back or tell you about their experience, and we're delighted to help that word of mouth here. Quality and service is what you'll come to know with Trades Unlimited. They measure twice and cut once. The hot summer sun is perfect for foam recoats. Protect your roof before the foam beneath the coating gets compromised. Don't wait until it's too late. Call my friends over at Trades Unlimited at 480 483-1775. That's 480-483-1775. Or find them online at tradesunlimited.com. Steve Hayward is uh, who I was quoting earlier um, in the previous segment, uh, is getting at something I've wondered, which is uh, up until November – Our task was trying to explain what socialism was like and warning about it in theory. And it's a problem to discuss a theory when when not only is it hypothetical, but it's predictive. Because enough people can say, eh, I don't believe it. Eh, it won't be that bad. And now here we are, and we're in the um, either unenviable or enviable position of saying, I told you so. Except we don't have to say that. The policies will say that. The administration will say that. Perhaps this is why Joe Biden at 100 days in is more polarizing than Donald Trump or Barack Obama. 
But as Steve puts it, I persist in arguing that the Democratic Party's lurch to the far left is doing us a great favor. This is my point by making explicit and visible what they usually try to conceal and setting up a backlash that might actually break the country's now three decades old 50 50 split. My two witnesses, Steve says, are Democratic strategist James Carville and New York Times columnist, but vehemently anti-Trump Brett Stevens, both of whom say much the same thing today, despite having different political outlooks. Stevens writes in the New York Times today, and yet those doubts and misgivings about the left's relentless racism narrative go to the heart of what used to be thought of as liberalism. The result will be a liberal crack-up, similar to the one in the late 60s that broke liberalism as America's dominant political force of a generation. Above all, liberalism believes that truth tends to be many-shaded and complex. Anti-racism is a great simplifier, good and evil, black and white. This is where the anti-racism narrative will profoundly alienate liberal-minded America, even as it entrenches itself in schools, universities, corporations, and other institutions of American life. Joe Biden's resounding victory and his progressive policies are supposed to mark the real end of the Reaganite era of American politics, Stevens writes. Don't be surprised if there are a prelude to its return, just as the last era of progressive excess ushered in its beginning. Yeah, Carter brings you Reagan. Um, exactly. Um, meanwhile, here's James Carville, who, you know, take take it for what you want, but at least he knows how to beat Republicans sometimes. He was asked, what do you make of Biden's first 100 days? Quote, honestly, if we're just talking about Biden, it's very difficult to find something to complain about. And to me, his biggest attribute is that he's not into faculty lounge politics, which is you ever get the sense that people in faculty lounges and fancy colleges use a different language than ordinary people? They come up with a word like Latinx or Latinx that no one else uses, or they use a phrase like communities of color. I don't know anyone who speaks like that. I don't know anyone who lives in a community of color, <laughs> James Carville. I know lots of white and black and brown people, and they all live in what we call in America neighborhoods, <laughs> communities of color. It's funny. There's nothing inherently wrong with these phrases, but this is not how people talk. This is not how voters talk. And doing it anyway is a signal that you're talking one language and the people you want to vote for you are speaking another language. This stuff is harmless in one sense, but in another sense, it's not. We have to talk about race, Carville says. We should talk about racial injustice. What I'm saying is we need to do it without using jargony language that's unrecognizable to most people, including most black people, by the way, because it signals that you're trying to talk around them. This too cool for school stuff doesn't work, and we have to stop it. Wokeness is a pro get this, okay, Carville. Wokeness is a problem, and everyone knows it. It's not me. It's not Newt Gingrich. It's James Carville. Wokeness is a problem, and everyone knows it. It's hard to talk to anybody today, and I talk to lots of people who don't say this, but they don't want to say it out loud because they'll get clobbered or canceled. And look, part of the problem is that lots of Democrats will say that we have to listen to everybody and we have to include every perspective or, they don't, or that we don't have to run a ruthless messaging campaign. Well, you kind of do. 
It really matters, Carville said. So here's 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 the money point. Or here's the here's the big point here. Carville says wokeness is a problem and everyone knows it. There's only one political party in America that embraces wokeness. And it embraces it to ridiculous levels and extremes. And it's the Democratic Party. And if it is a problem, wokeness, that everyone knows, this is going to be hugely problematic for the Democratic Party. I don't expect big, tectonic, huge conversions. I really don't. But I do expect conversions. And I expect them to come from the idyllic, democratic voter that people talk about but aren't really in power the 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 democrat who voted for joe biden thinking they were getting moderate joe biden those people the people who don't know what we talk about here every day who don't know what dennis prager talks about the people who don't know what the democrats are really up to people who don't know that Nancy Pelosi had a choice between AOC and Ilan Omar and Republican Party opponents, excuse me, Democratic Party opponents in their primaries. And she chose to leave an Omar and AOC and gave them money. People don't, in the Democratic Party think that way. I do. I do because I need to know where the direction of this party is. And the direction of this party is, as Carvel puts it, a problem and everyone knows it. And they're just getting started. Byron York is on this case, going a little further on Joe Biden's popularity. Now, he's going to give a message, uh, a joint uh, session message to Congress tomorrow, what we normally, after the first year, call a State of the Union address. It'll be interesting to see what he emphasizes. My guess is it's going to be heavy on race. By the way, today when he came out and made the statement on the CDC's new guidelines on masks and outdoors and vaccinated people and if they have to wear masks, he had a long walk. Bill, you saw that walk to the podium. It was a long walk all alone from the White House to the front White House lawn all alone. There was no security. There was no wife. There were no dogs. There was no assistance. All alone for what must have been a two-minute walk, wearing a mask outside, while he is giving a press conference to explain that if you're vaccinated and outside and alone, you don't need to wear a mask. There is nothing about this administration, certainly Joe Biden's brain, that connects the dots. He was asked about it. He was asked about it, and he said... Well, watch me walk back without a mask until I go inside. And he laughed. I don't think it's any of this is funny. I think this is a bad game of a bad game where you're playing with people's concerns and fears and health. And they're just not serious about it. It's just not a serious effort. I'll come back to that in a moment when uh, Lewis Hallman joins me. But just Byron York on Joe Biden's approval ratings, acting as if he's got this huge mandate. 
his approval rating is lower than Barack Obama's at this time. It's lower than George W. Bush's at this time. It's lower than Bill Clinton's at this time. It's lower than George H.W. Bush's at this time. It's lower than Ronald Reagan's at this time. And it's lower than Jimmy Carter's at this time by 10 points. It's also lower than Nixon's and lower than Lyndon Johnson's and lower than John Kennedy's and lower than Dwight Eisenhower's and lower and lower than Harry Truman's. This is not a widely popular administration or president. And for those, I tell you, yeah, well, better than Trump. Not so fast. Not so fast. More Republicans are unhappy with Joe Biden than Democrats were with Donald Trump. This may be the most polarizing presidency in our lifetimes. It may very well be. Oh, I know people will say compared to Trump's. Yes, compared to Trump's. Because the polarization of Trump's presidency was what everyone else said about it. The policies were not that polarizing. They didn't divide Americans. They united them. We'll be right back.